The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, were your faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, with a servant plowing or minding sheep, would say to him when he returned from the fields, come and have your meal immediately? Would he not be more likely to say, get my supper laid, make yourself tidy and wait on me while I eat and drink? You can eat and drink yourself afterwards. Must he be grateful to the servant for doing what he was told? So with you, when you have done all that you have been told to do, say, we are merely servants. We have done no more than our duty. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Today's readings are a curious mixture. They combine that little reading from Habakkuk, a 7th century minor prophet, 7th century BC. And then we continue with our reading from Paul's letter to his trusted disciple, his understudy, Timothy. And the instructions really start to intensify because I suppose martyrdom is in the, is in the horizon. And finally, we hear that encounter with the disciples praying for faith, of all things. Increase our faith, increase our belief. And the answer they receive from Jesus is really unexpected, I think. Because you would think that Jesus wants to increase our faith, wouldn't you? But that's not what we hear. The second half of this gospel passage has come up a few times in some of the school liturgies I've had with the children at St. John's. And we've marveled, really, at the strange dynamic that God invites us into. Because he's talking about servants. In fact, he's talking about slaves. And it's true. We, as the faithful, we are servants of God and each other. And if we want to intensify what that means, the scriptures doesn't hesitate to call us slaves, just to stress the point. But what is the kingdom of God? Because if we imagine it to be a gigantic cosmic slave trade, we'd have the wrong idea. That's not at all what God is inviting us into. While we are servants, think back to your own baptism. Think of the fact that each of us was anointed priest, prophet, and king. You were crowned with sacred oils. Remember how you were received by adoption into the family of God. There's no strangers here. In fact, we're not even friends. We're meant to be more intimately bound than that. We become brothers and sisters, and thereby we become co-heirs with Jesus. That means as a son or a daughter, you now have as birthright the same inheritance as Christ himself, the only begotten son. That's a staggering thing. It's, it's, it's insane. But this is our faith. No one is a nobody in heaven. If you're there, you're a beloved child. And think lastly of Jesus getting down on his haunches to wash the disciples' feet. And then throughout history, getting down to wash each of our feet. Because he calls each of us into, into discipleship. And he says, if I can't do this, you have nothing in common with me. The great irony of the kingdom of God is that we are all slaves to each other, God included. God makes himself our slave, and we make ourselves slaves to God and to each other. And thereby we fulfill the great commandment, 
we realize that heavenly reality of loving God above all, with all my mind, all my strength, all my intellect, all my will, and my neighbor as myself. This is simply what the heavenly society does. In this world, we might be anxious to submit ourselves to each other in that fashion because we'll be taken advantage of. This world is not heaven, but in heaven that is how things function. And so we see the great challenge of the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us at least try and love that way. Bring heaven to earth and raise earth up into the heavenly realm. To begin this work, we need a certain gift from God because we can't do it by our own strength or our own genius. We need that gift that God plants in each of our hearts, the gift of faith. So what is faith? Just to give a few short definitions, the Catechism tells us that faith is a response to God's revealing of himself. God reveals himself, God gives himself to us, and faith is our response. It says, faith is our submission of self to God. So where do I rest? In my own hands? No. I hand myself over to another. That's an act of faith. It says, faith is both a gift from God and an act by which the human believer assents to personal adherence to God. So it's not just a gift, but it's also something that I exert. Faith is ultimately a free assent to the whole truth revealed by God, freely of my mind, of my heart, insofar as I can, with the stress on freedom, because God, God's, God doesn't want us to be slaves in the sense that we have no freedom. But with all respect, God invites me to profess our creeds, to enter into our sacraments, to come and partake of the liturgy. All of this is our faith. Finally, faith is both a theological virtue given by grace and the most basic obligation of the law. And we've heard the law summarized many times. Love of God, love of neighbor. Faith allows this. Now, I want to make a point here and probe at why Jesus may have given the response he did to the disciples because I really think it's, it's not what we would expect. Clearly, faith is necessary. Sometimes I hear people enamored with some of Christianity. They say, I love the church's great commitment to justice. Or, I can't get enough of the church's rich intellectual heritage, its philosophy, its, um, its art. Or, I love the church's values and its high priority of ethics and virtues and being the best person I can be. This is all true. These are all very attractive facades of the church's life. But eventually they add, I'm not so taken by the faith. Whether they say it explicitly or something gives it away, I'm not so taken with the faith. Give me the great moral and intellectual heritage and you keep God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. This is, of course, nonsense. It doesn't work. And yet when the disciples ask, Lord, increase our faith, Jesus seems to decline. Instead, he says, were your faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What's he saying? So this isn't the only time Jesus refers to faith like a mustard seed. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says something similar. 
The disciples have just failed to expel a demon from a possessed person who's asked for help. And they ask Jesus, why were we unable to exercise this demon? And he says, because you have so little faith. But then he adds, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. This is very perplexing. We're receiving mixed messages here. What's he saying? Finally, in Mark's gospel in chapter 4, amongst his other parables, Jesus says, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? What parable shall we describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth, yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. This is a vivid but no less strange image of faith. What exactly is this thing that we're meant to have but we're not meant to sort of binge on? Might I suggest that Jesus is telling us faith is necessary, but faith is not exclusively necessary. In other words, faith alone is not sufficient. Faith, faith, and more faith is not, in fact, the answer to all of life's problems. We cannot pursue heaven by faith alone. Rather, everything we have and everything we are must be disposed faithfully to God. Faith is sort of the undercurrent or the backdrop or the, the tiny, tiny ingredient that changes the whole chemical makeup of everything. I'll give an example. We hear that faith completes reason, but it doesn't replace or contradict reason. If faith were to replace reason, we would become what the church calls credulous. That means we'd believe things far too hastily, too easily. And the church is not credulous. Have you ever seen how slow the church is in verifying Eucharistic miracles? It's very, very slow takes a very long time, and those supposed miracles are subjected to, hear this, various scientific tests before the church dares to say anything in favor of it. So does the church have a phobia of the sciences? Far from it. We submit our miracles to scientific scrutiny. This is something the church is happy to do. Philosophers, biologists, whoever you are, come examine our claims, if they are in fact miracles. You can't examine the Eucharist because that's not strictly a miracle. It's not that something unnatural is happening. It's that the... Anyway, we've spoken about the Eucharist another day. Um, if a person presents themselves as having a spiritual disturbance, having demonic activity in their life, what is the church's first response? Do we say, okay, let's get 40 liters of holy water, get the candles and the incense, let's... You know, no. That's not the church's first response. Of course, we'll pray for the person in their distress... And we can bless them in some fashion. But we're not performing an exorcism. In fact, if someone does present that kind of chronic degree of disturbance in their life, the church says, go to a psychologist and rule out the possibility that there's unsoundness of mind here. Rule it out. Seek it all the way through. Because the church is not credulous. It's not quick to jump to these fantastic conclusions. Faith directs the intellect and the will, and it raises and perfects all other virtues. 
That means faith cannot replace virtues like prudence, justice, courage, temperance. We need to cultivate those, and then faith raises them to a higher degree. But faith cannot be in their place. We can't live by faith alone. It does not work. Faith, finally, is not enough if it does not flow into fulfilling the twofold commandment of charity. My faith should drive me to love God, to love my neighbor as myself. See then how faith, whatever exactly it is, falls within the complexity of the human flourishing. See how it respects the integrity of what the human person is long before explicit faith is part of the question. Any human out there, hopefully, is aiming for the good, is a person of goodwill, and therefore faith can be fruitfully planted in their life. Just a mustard seed. Just enough. This is why anyone is welcome to celebrate Mass with us. They cannot receive the sacraments, but they can press into their experience here using all the gifts they already have, reason, intellect, goodwill. This is why just a few moments ago and every Sunday we sing those words, glory to God in the highest, that's a faith statement, and peace, not to all people of faith, peace to all people of goodwill, peace to all people for whom the small seed of faith would germinate radically because their life is disposed to it. Here's the bottom line. The hard work of faith for all of us is, in a way, not really about faith at all. It's about all of life. And no one is exempt from this. Increase our faith. I've already given you plenty, Jesus says. It is like rocket fuel. Too much is a problem. And having rocket fuel with no rocket engine is ludicrous. But just a little bit of faith processed and at work throughout all areas of my life, this can do everything, including raising earth and opening heaven. So here once more then, perhaps as our own prayer, those words of Habakkuk, it's a summons to prayer, and it's written some two and a half thousand years ago, but I think it resonates in our hearts today. How long, O Lord, am I to cry for help while you will not listen, to cry oppression in your ear, and you will not save. Why do you set injustice before me? Why do you look on where there is tyranny, outrage, and violence? This is all I see. All is contention, and discord flourishes. Then the Lord answers and says, Write the vision down. If it comes slowly, Wait, for it will come without fail. See how he flags, whose soul is not at rights, but the upright one will live by their faithfulness.